surprised when they first come down to Orlando if we have some additional players to test positive. What would be most concerning is once players enter this campus and then go through our quarantine period, then if they were to test positive or we were to have any positive tests, we would know that there's in essence a hole in our bubble or that our quarantine is not, that that our campus is not working in some way. Watch a movie. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Quick, quick, quick. Strawberry Everybody who listens to this podcast knows how I feel about aggregation. I'm oddly intrigued by neck tattoos. You know, we love China. We love no plan here. Oh, man. I'm sorry. It's sorry. just hitting hit me right now. Shut up and listen. You, you think you're better than me? <laughs> All right. Uh, after a drug-addled hallucinatory experience in game one, we are back. <laughs> this is Swish FM, Chris Wendell and Ben Craw. Ben, uh, I know you've had a, uh, a solid week or so now to, to uh, sober up, to air yeah. out after our seasick adventure during game yeah. one. Uh, to come down off that, that, heady, that heady high... Yeah. Um, How you doing, man? Yeah, it's How been you a, uh, you know, it's it's been a pretty slow and gradual uh, sort of reentry, um, I would say, into uh, into everyday sanity. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I'm pretty much back. Uh, I think I'm 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 close to 100, percent if not 100. percent So um, yeah, uh, of course, as soon as my energy bar uh, fills up, I am uh, I am ready for more punishment. Um, <laughs> So that's that's pretty much what we're doing here. So Good stuff. Yeah, just uh, recovered just in time for uh, <laughs> game two. <laughs> boy, oh boy, we are back. Well, yeah. um, some housekeeping at the top here. Thanks to everyone who left us a review, a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done so already, please do that. It helps the show out a lot. Ben, our latest uh, five-star review is titled... Best basketball-themed podcast on the web. It reads, love the rebrand. Swish FM has the greatest logo art on the internet. Game over. It's over, ladies and gentlemen. It's over. So uh, pretty much, you know, ideal. Uh, Nails it right there. So yes, more of that. If you're you're listening, if you haven't written a review yet, it really helps us out a lot. And uh, yeah, if you like the, if you like the, uh, 1994 rewatches if you're a fan of the uh our our film series the rewatchables whatever it is uh let us know that you listen and enjoy the rewatchables the redraftables um we're we're doing all the uh all the reables maybe you're uh, a a boku fan maybe you want to chime in with your favorite flavor of boku if you're a, a white cherry uh, black grape, whatever it is, you know, just just sound off. We'd love to hear oh, from please. you. Oh, please, yeah, please reach out. Um, please reach out if you're a Boku drinker or if you were in, in any way involved in the Boku ad campaign of the <laughs> early to mid nineties. Yeah, um, my God, please reach out. Uh, email us, uh, DM yes. us, whatever you want to do. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. All right, Ben. <clears throat> so at the top of the show here today, we were talking about, um, you know trying to give these NBA rewatches, the 1994 playoff run, some context. That's right, Chris. We're not just a basketball podcast. (laughs) Uh, We also care about 
real life things, right. the real world. Well, yeah. the thing is sort of basketball is just a sliver of life. And to understand basketball, you sort of have to zoom out sometimes to understand what else was happening in the world. So mm. um, I think it's important so tragic. I would uh, yeah. I would really prefer to keep politics out of sports. Um I really, I really wish, uh, you know, I stand with Senator uh, Kelly Loeffler. Um, no, you've been I, adamant I, I, about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been on the record as a huge, huge fan and supporter of hers uh, for uh, as, as long as I've been following her, going back to her early days in politics. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, really just couldn't, um, couldn't voice any, uh, any fuller support for her position, which is uh, politics should not be out of sports uh, mm. unless you are a U.S. senator who owns a sports team. <laughs> sports team. Anyways, yeah. I, I thought it was important for us to try to give this, this uh, 1994 NBA Finals some, uh, some context politically, socially, historically. And obviously the last few weeks we've been talking a lot about the death of George Floyd and the civil unrest in this country and whether or not it makes sense for players in the NBA to try to resume playing in the Orlando bubble in lieu of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, still no. Still no st- on that one the, the from, from me. still no. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm still a no on that. I wanted to see if we could try to continue to have those conversations as it relates to the 1994 NBA finals between the Knicks and the Rockets and try to give our listeners. And if we're being honest with our, with ourselves, um, because that's ultimately who this podcast is always about, Ben, you and I Mm -hmm. try to give us a framework and just a greater understanding of what was happening in the world and in our country as we were consuming our favorite entertainment product, which is what the NBA is, uh, professional basketball. And, um, yeah, like, you know, to be clear, I think the reason we want to do this just to reiterate is like, it's not, this is not some sort of like form of torture. This is not some (laughs) form of like sadism, obviously rewatching the Nick playoff run is sort of torture enough, but I think we should do this because it actually informs and explains a lot about us and our values, Ben, and it helps to understand the world that we are, we are are currently living in and that we were living in and how it shaped and helped build um, our love for the NBA. And mm-hmm. it's actually a vital part of the uh, self-discovery process, Ben. And in essence, this is an extension of your therapy, Ben. Um, yeah. So in order to understand who we are, we have to sort of understand our past. And um, so the year is 1994, uh, without further ado. It's 1994, and... Um, I tried to think about like, where do we begin when we start thinking about 1994, uh, in terms of the world and, and the United States, what was happening culturally, socially, politically, and how that informed the NBA, both in 1994 and and the current state of the NBA. And so quite literally, I just looked at, uh, you know, I, I started Googling around, what was happening on January 1st of 1994? Literally, like, how did the year begin? And the biggest thing that jumped off the page for me, Ben, was the signing of NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, uh, the signing of NAFTA into law. And I will try to talk, Ben, in really some quick, broad strokes here, and then we'll dive into some specifics. But basically, and please chime in as I... Uh, mess this up and 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 incorrectly describe uh, what NAFTA was. But in short, NAFTA was an agreement signed by Canada, Mexico, and the United States, creating uh, a trade block in North America. And 
free trade zones were um, something that were begun under President Ronald Reagan. It, it was uh, part of his uh, 1980 presidential campaign. And um, after the signing of the Canada-United States Free Trade Agreement in 1988, uh, President uh, George, George Bush, the first George Bush, uh, began negotiating with the president of Mexico and the prime minister of Canada and uh, basically got like the framework for what would eventually become NAFTA. NAFTA, the, the, NAFTA faced significant opposition, um, but it was eventually signed into law under President Clinton in November of 1993 and took effect January 1st of 1994. So you have basically leadership from both political parties um, creating this enormous trade block in, uh, in North America. Um, there were pros and cons with NAFTA. Um, but basically, you know, I, I think that some of the large criticisms of NAFTA were that it resulted in the reduction and elimination really of barriers to trade and investment between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Um, it had enormous effects globally and in the United States with regard to employment, with regard to the environment, the economy, and more specifically, the allocation and distribution, Ben, of wealth and power. And in uh, essence... Distribution in essence, of wealth, our yeah, favorite topic. In essence, Ben, NAFTA eliminated trade barriers to businesses and basically made all of North America an open free market place to do business. And now I right. swear this relates to the NBA. We'll tie it back to the NBA. But so, so we are talking about North America becoming um, free reign for capitalism. So, mm -hmm. um, and as we know, NBA owners and, and, and the National Basketball Association greatly benefited and profiteered from um, practices and bills like NAFTA becoming law. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, uh, uh, the Economic Policy Institute described NAFTA by saying, um, by establishing the principle that U.S. corporations could relocate production elsewhere and sell back to the United States, NAFTA undercut the bargaining power of American workers, which had driven the expansion of the middle class since the end of World War II. The result had been 20 years of stagnant wages an upward redistribution of income, wealth, and political power. Mm -hmm. So um, some of the key effects of NAFTA, Ben, uh, on workers were the loss in the United States, the loss of about 700,000 jobs as production moved um, from the United States to Mexico. Mostly these jobs were in manufacturing in California, Texas, Michigan. Um, NAFTA strengthened the ability of U.S. employers to force workers to accept lower wages and benefits. And um, as NAFTA became law, corporate managers would begin telling workers that their companies intended to move to Mexico unless those workers took lower wages um, and, you know, just basically made the workplace a, a less safe place. And, you know, lots of times you see in the midst of collective bargaining, negotiations with unions, corporations would start uh, loading machinery on trucks uh, yeah. that they said were bound for Mexico. Just threat, just openly threatening their workers with, with retribution uh, for demanding better conditions yes. and pay. Or the idea, hey, look, if you vote to unionize, we're going to move south of the border. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of the big um, complaints and effects of NAFTA. And basically, NAFTA, uh, it was described, uh, was used as the template for the rules of the emerging global economy in which the benefits would flow to capital, upward to capital, at the cost of labor. And Ben, Mm -hmm. we've been critical of the MBA for normalizing that sort of same ideology and principle, offloading risk and liability, while ownership reaps the majority of the benefits and the reward and the profit. So I thought- There is a salary cap for players, but there is not a salary cap for owners. So, yeah, man, I I wanted to begin the podcast today talking about the the effects of NAFTA um, and how it helped shape the MBA business model, how it shaped kind of our thought process about unionized labor and... um, yeah, and just and 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 not really necessarily. I, I guess it's impossible to not have a political conversation here, but really, like, just have a frank conversation about the effects of this thing being signed into law and how it shaped our economy and ideology about doing business in this country. Yeah. So, listen, we should make it clear: NAFTA is a very complicated massive uh, stack of paper worth of uh, law. Um, And I could probably study it for, I don't know, four years and like not know every single element of it. Um, But in the sort of big, and also I should note that I have not studied it for four years. (laughs) Um, I um, honestly didn't think about it very much um, for most of my life. uh, after its, uh, you know, enactment in, in 1994, um, because I was 11 years old and it was incredibly fucking boring to even listen to that word. And right. I was too busy watching the Knicks play basketball and playing Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis. Um, so, uh, I can't claim to be any sort of an expert or a scholar or an authority on this, but even a very relatively ignorant layperson like me can kind of understand the the big picture, which is that NAFTA was just another tool to kind of like if you think of money like water water takes the path of least resistance and it pools uh and nafta was basically just a giant mechanism that made that flow uh of capital a lot more smooth and seamless um and and allowed that that capital to flow um you know, like you said, upward uh, uh, and 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 collect, um, increasing you know uh, inequality and uh, and, and um, uh, you know um, what's the word? Uh, basically, yeah, wage wage inequality and 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 the the distribution of of uh, the unequal distribution of wealth. Um, it also had you know like basically. And I've heard arguments for NAFTA where it's like, oh, but, you know, things become more efficient if you can, you know, trade uh, equally with a, uh, you know, a country that that produces one good, you know, uh, more easily or more efficiently than another. Uh, So goods, uh, you know, the cost of goods is lowered and and that's savings in the consumer and that helps juice economies, yada, yada, yada. Um, which is true, like, in the short term. Um, in fact, one of the direct results of NAFTA is that suddenly America was flooded with avocados for the first time. Uh, because avocado um, 
imports from Mexico were outlawed until um, NAFTA made them legal, pretty much. So people didn't really eat avocados. There was like a small amount produced in California and Florida. Um, but uh, but after NAFTA, avocado consumption, like, I think increased like 7x or something like that I in America. Avocados, um, man. They're so yeah. Good. I mean, avocados are awesome. I put so them on thank my sandwiches. you. I have guacamole whenever it's available. Uh, I, I mean, it's one of the few things that my son Teo will, will willingly eat. It's like not, um, really? you know, a, a, a bowl of ice cream. Uh, so, so thank goodness. Um, so, um, thank you NAFTA. Yeah. Thank you NAFTA for that. Um, but there are also disastrous consequences. Um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, basically if a worker or if a company can threaten to, uh, outsource, uh, jobs to places like Mexico with much cheaper labor where they don't have to pay their workers as much, um, it decreases the bargaining power of those American workers, uh, there's also disastrous environmental consequences because uh, U.S. companies can uh, build a factory in uh, Mexico or somewhere else where there aren't as strict environmental laws and regulations. It's basically just a giant deregulation of business. Yeah. Um, it's and it capitalism out, on steroids. Yeah, and... it's just a juicing. It's a juicing of the quote-unquote free market system, yeah. um, which um, is not necessarily the natural order of things people often say like oh well you know nafta like free trade is just sort of it's natural it makes sense it's like it's it's the invisible hand just kind of controlling everything um but it turns out that it's not natural um big businesses corporations and and the business lobby in, in america canada and mexico uh, and to be clear, this wasn't something that was forced on Canada and Mexico. There were massive uh, corporate interests in Canada and Mexico that also wanted NAFTA. So they all agreed to it um, because uh, those countries, much like America, you know, have a a wealthy ruling class um, and, and sort of have the same, you know, money-driven um, interests. Anyway, um, uh, my point was that... Uh, 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 where was I going? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So the point is that it wasn't a natural kind of uh, state of things. Uh, giant corporate interests had to say, no, 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 this is something that we really want that's going to be really good for us. So we need to change the laws um, to, to basically to benefit ourselves at the cost of workers and the environment. Um, and that's what happened. So um yeah it's it's definitely a little more complicated than that but that's yeah broad strokes. pretty much the, the broad strokes um and it is yeah it's laws like nafta um and, and other laws like it that have basically just helped uh increase the um you know inequality and uh yeah i would say it has taken the disparity in income and wealth between the middle and upper class and certainly the upper and lower class and literally just rip them apart. Like, like I said, put it on steroids. So mm -hmm. again, applying this to the NBA, there are a few conversations and points that like are worth discussing and, and, and talking about. But one is for starters, you know, the 30 billionaires that control the NBA, the 30 ownership groups that run the NBA, the 30 billionaire owners in the NBA, uh, you know, literally all of them have been the beneficiary of um, NAFTA's implementation. And additionally, like a larger conversation I want to have with you, you know, over the life of the podcast is just like the 
role of union, unionized labor in this country and bargaining power and the importance of uh, laborers to collectively bargain with their employers is vital. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I understand like when we talk about professional athletes and their labor unions, sometimes people scoff because it's like, well, you know, these multimillionaire athletes, like, do they really need to haggle with their owners? Uh, and the right. Players they're not getting, like, they have this, they're great not getting cushy, ex- exploited with like slave wages. They have this and great cushy yada, life. Yada. Like, how could I really, how could I really relate to this person? How could I really feel bad for this person? And I right. would just say, first of all, um, just because someone is making a lot of money doesn't, change the fact on principle that they are entitled to certain benefits and work conditions that we all are, regardless of how much money they're making. But Mm -hmm. secondly, and maybe more importantly, I think there's like a symbolism um, at play that like these are the people that actually we all look up to and watch and they entertain us. And Mm -hmm they are basically, they are championing our values, like, or the the ideas and the beliefs that, like, actually, it's important to have a negotiation, a constructive discussion with the person that you work for about, like, what is and is not acceptable. And in the same way that, like, we look to them, frankly, for, um, even if it's symbolically, for their voice when it comes to things like civil rights and this whole social justice moment that's happening. Like, we actually look to them and take cues from them about, like, when it's time to, uh, you know, hit pause and maybe say, like, actually, this is an important thing. We shouldn't just blow past this because the way we handle this is actually the way other people in society and in business are going to handle this. So Mm -hmm. yeah, man, like I said, I'm interested to continue to have a conversation with you about the role of unionized labor in this country and the importance of collective bargaining. Yeah, we should definitely have, uh, once we're done with our our little 1994 uh, playoff run here, I am becoming just more and more fascinated with the um, NBA, like kind of labor movement for lack of a better term. Yeah. And I want to like do deep dives on like the 99 lockout and the 2011 lockout. Um, it's super fascinating to me, even though it's obviously like not anything, you know, strictly basketball on court related. Um, it is, yeah, it's it's like something that I again as a kid I just never fucking thought about. I was just like, oh bummer, there's a lockout. I can't watch basketball now, and then I would just go do something else. I like literally like didn't think twice about like what it meant, why the players were doing it, who was right, who was wrong, um, and now as like a you know somewhat more kind of conscious uh, you know sort of consumer of the product, I, I'm like. Like that to me is like <laughs> the way more fascinating thing. Yeah, it's way more um, fascinating, man. Like it's it's. You know, it's part of this whole discussion that we're having that we've been having the last, you know, few months, which is like we need to actually care and respect uh, the the athletes that we watch on a night to night basis uh, yeah. for who they are, like holistically as people like, yeah, it, it, it's vital that they are given the same respect and love and that they're safe 
um, as people because uh, they're mm-hmm. more than just entertainment products. They're actually people and our neighbors. And um, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's... And of course, the whole, the whole restart uh, is just like throwing everything into like such stark contrast where it's yeah. just like heightening the stakes um, uh, uh, of everything. But the sort of like underlying argument is just as like simple as it, as it ever was. It's just like, you know, who, you know, like who is at risk, who is, who is, you know, benefiting the most. Um, and it just, it does just come down to like simple questions of like labor versus money. Um, and, uh, yeah. So I think it's like, you know, I, I feel like we're being a little preachy, but it's also like very clearly like the most kind of relevant topic. Um, because it's, you know, again, COVID has just like put everything like on steroids where it's just like, it's just laid bare, uh, how our the values. system works, yeah. yeah, our values, how the system works, what we actually, you know, do value, uh, whether it's money or, or human life. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, it sounds like a very like dramatic like thing to be like, okay, it's, it comes down to like money versus human life. But like, that is literally the question that is being debated right now, not just in the NBA, but across our entire country. Um, and it's pretty, pretty black and white, you know? Yeah. Um, one last thing, and then we can tie up, uh, and wrap up the conversation about NATO, uh, about NAFTA, excuse me, but, um, <laughs> NATO is next week, folks. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so when Donald Trump took office in January of 17, 2017, he initially sought to replace NAFTA with a new agreement, um, and negotiated with Canada and Mexico And then by September of 2018, the U.S., Mexico, and Canada reached an agreement to replace NAFTA with the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, uh, the Mm -hmm. USMCA. Um, And uh, all three countries ratified it in March of 2020. And then the USMCA took effect a week ago, July 1st, 2020, replacing NAFTA it's um, wow. I, yeah. I realized it actually took took effect a week ago. It's yeah, crazy. yeah, yeah. I have read basically descriptions of it. Again, I, you and I are not experts on any of this stuff, but I have read descriptions of it as essentially um, NAFTA 2.0. 2.0. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I I think uh, again, I'm I'm not an expert uh, on the subject, but I think from what I understand, when Trump was campaigning. In 2016, he was largely running on a platform regarding trade that, you know, NAFTA was the worst thing that ever happened. We should disband NAFTA. And then when he, right. took, when he took office, kind of corporate interests set in around him. And basically, he decided the best thing to do would be to, uh, like, tweak NAFTA and, and to alter NAFTA as opposed to just, like, rip it up completely. So Right. Well, he, he very smartly railed against NAFTA right. uh, during his 2016 campaign because he knew that would play right. um, to the, you know, white working class uh, voters that he needed in the South and in the Midwest. Um, right. You know, the, the, the same types of uh, former factory workers that, that got laid off and the same, you know, t- entire towns and communities right. that were... Uh, just decimated by by NAFTA um, and you know other things like whatever uh, automation and mm-hmm. and you know obviously it's not just NAFTA alone sure. that contributed to um, but he knew that like NAFTA was like a very easy yeah. boogeyman um, a, a very easy scapegoat and then he kind of combined that with the 
um, you know, the, the much more like xenophobic racist uh, stuff where it's like, you know, NAFTA um, means that, you know, the Mexicans are stealing your jobs, yada, yada. Right. Um, and it worked. It worked really well. Um, of course, yeah, he was coming at it not fr- like a, a, from a pretty, I would say, bad faith place of, yeah. of just saying this and, is very politically convenient for me. And then, of course, yeah, once he took office, he was like, oh, well, I can't sure. <laughs> tear up NAFTA because and it turns out the like entire capitalist class depends on it yeah Yeah, not even like a pro-trump or anti-trump thing it's because we see politicians of both parties uh we've seen every politician sort of do that exact thing which is like you kind of campaign on one premise and then the realities of being in office are obviously always wind up being much more complicated so um yeah he campaigned on the idea of abolishing and and ripping up nafta and what has effectively taken place is an alteration of NAFTA. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, uh, one last point I wanted to make, which is kind of like segueing off that, which is like, you know, when I think about NAFTA, again, I, I have, I'm just, be, full disclosure, I'm just beginning to understand NAFTA uh, as, as I like dive into it and, and read about it. But everything I knew about it, certainly in 1994, uh, and even as recently as the last few years, was just the political rhetoric, political rhetoric around it. And Don- Donald Trump used it a lot as like this wedge issue, sort of um, laying it at the feet of the Clintons and the Democrats being like, you know, Bill Clinton screwed you over in the, in the, in the mid-90s with this NAFTA thing, and it's been terrible since then. But, you know, just again, just doing a cursory amount of research here, it is clear to me, Ben, that like it was pretty much <laughs> equally uh, like loved by both parties. This was not like a, oh yeah, this was not like the Republicans were right and the Democrats were wrong, or the Democrats were wrong and the Republicans were right. Like they pretty much all were in bed with corporations, and they yeah. all it wasn't a Democratic versus Republican issue. It was a no, it was a capitalist, capitalist versus socialist issue. Yeah, it was a capitalist issue. And it's yeah. it's interesting to see politicians from the two major uh, American political parties try to, you know, like present it and frame it as like, you know, those guys were the were the reason that your life is terrible and I'm going to make it better. But the reality is like whether it was Ronald Reagan or or George Bush or Bill Clinton, um, you, you know, or or President Obama. Um, or, or Donald Trump, like they're they've all been in bed with all these corporations, and they're all like, they're all uh, uh, at the will and uh, of these large corporations. We got our we got our vegetables done. Now yeah. it's time for a little dessert. Let's move on to the main course, Ben. Um, <laughs> today we are going to be talking about uh, June tenth, nineteen ninety four, Game Two of the 1994 NBA Finals between the New York Knicks and the Houston Rockets. Ben, we are at the Summit in Houston, mm. Texas. Thoughts, impressions as we uh, dive back into the game today. What was running through your head when you started re-watching uh, Game 2? Well, of course, when I first clicked open the file, um, which I had not opened uh, before, I my immediate thought was... How's the video quality looking? And I could swear, like, I had, like, a little moment where I think my mind... It's just, like, straight, like, 
swaying kind of just habitually. Um, and I was like, oh god, it's it's happening again. But it but it turns out, um, rest assured, it, it is actually is a a pretty regular standard quality uh, broadcast that yeah. we have here for game two, um, which was. You know, I don't know. I think I definitely have a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome where I kind of almost missed um, the, the torture a little bit of uh, of game one. Um, this game just didn't quite feel as... Well, it certainly didn't feel as psychedelic. Um, and it, it didn't feel quite as... Um, you know, uh, uh, like I was, I was actually surviving, uh, like, like physical torture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's which, sort of, it's sort of, um, you know, it's sort of, uh, appropriate that this is the experience of game two, because that's essentially who the Knicks were, right? Which was like, you mm. literally never knew whether it was going to be a dream or a nightmare. Um, yeah. <laughs> every game was like kind of a mystery. And yeah. that is essentially what rewatching these old videos of these Knicks games has been like. Like sometimes it's a dream, and sometimes Ben, it's a horrible nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, so in game two here, uh, let's hop into it, Ben. Like uh, we'll just try to rifle through this as quickly as possible. Broad, uh, you know, observations in quarter one and two, and then we'll hop into some nitty gritty specifics in quarters three and four. But. Um, you know, my my opening thoughts here were just that was just that like the Knicks looked they come out of the blocks here and they just look much more competent offensively. Um, yeah, you know, like shockingly so. Yeah, Oakley, uh, Oakley, and Charles Smith have a putback on a Ewing miss. The Knicks are out front four to one early in the in the first quarter here, um, and. That, that that's just kind of my opening thing. Oakley hits a jumper at one point. Derek Harper pickpockets Kenny Smith, takes it away to the other end for a layup. All of a sudden, the Knicks are up 10 to 5. And just like my immediate thought is just like, wow, the Knicks look much more competent offensively. And that Oakley jumper from about 18 feet felt like a really good sign. And I was just like, you know, if they can sink some of these open shots, they have a real shot to steal this game tonight. And if they can mm-hmm. steal the game, then we've won. Like, like the, the, the whole, you know, the onus here is on the Rockets to defend home court. And if we can just split this, these two games in Houston, then the advantage is to the Knicks. So I'm yeah. feeling really good. Because they had, of course, they had in the old format three straight games, uh, home games at oh, MSG right. coming up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if they if they could go back to New York with a one and one, they'd have three straight games. Now, and, of you course, know, if they that home court. that uh, that assumes that the Knicks are going to win all three of their home games, of, which of course. Is, of course is not likely. So it's almost even more important that they steal one on the road because you got to assume that they're not going to go perfect at home. They're probably going to lose one at home, so you have to right. get one on the road. Um, yeah. So early on, I'm feeling good with all the made jumpers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, indeed, yeah, it's a it's a blistering pace uh, uh, of, or at least a blistering rate of uh, of shooting. Knicks hit uh, their first six of nine uh, shots. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, like you said, Harper um, playing playing some really good defense. He had an amazing game. We'll we'll be talking about yeah. him a lot um, this game. Um, but early on, Lajuan makes a really nice little move, um, kind of spinning and, and doing a little like double clutch, uh, palming the ball, uh, up over Starks. 
Uh, so it's 9 to 12. Uh, Knicks, and then Starks has that incredible chase down block. Oh, my um, God, yeah. That was awesome. But then uh, Maxwell's right there to collect it and lay it in. An incredible um, defensive play from Starks blocking Kenny Smith at the rim. Barring with the lead for Smith. Starks racing back and blocked it. But Vernon Maxwell is there to get the offensive rebound on the putback. Yeah, Starks, of course, you know, uh, spotlight is on him after the 3-for-18 performance in Game 1. So there was a lot of talk about how he had to, like, come out a lot more aggressive, driving the ball, not relying on his outside shot. My God, Hakeem is so fucking smooth. So he's one-on-one with Patrick. And mm. he takes him off the dribble. Oh, just a yeah. He jabs toast him. On Wednesday, one-on-one move by Elijah Ron. What a beautiful move going right at Ewing. And the Rock- yeah, yep. dude. Like, the little he, crossover. Yeah, just that like little hesitation crossover. Pulls up probably from 16, 18 feet. Drains it. And yeah. there's just no defending it, man. Hakeem's sense of balance was just like otherworldly. He was like a goddamn seven-foot ballerina in basketball high tops. Score is 16-15, New York up by one point uh, in the first quarter. Yeah, Hakeem like, played basketball as if he w- weighed about 150 pounds, like it didn't make sense. Like he was like, it looked like he was basically always on yes. like the balls of his feet. Yeah. Um, like he was just so, so fleet footed and yeah. so graceful. Um, but I, I got to say the Knicks do a pretty good job at containing him. There's a, always like a couple little like, kind oh, yeah. of, you know, like, mo- like, like, like incredible moments where you're like, whoa, look at that move. But for the most part, they have him, you know, pretty well contained. No, that's They're doing the thing. The- it's like they played great defense on him. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Anthony Mason here throughout oh, the yeah. course of the yeah, episode. Yeah. Mason uh, does a great job on him. And it's just you see these flashes where it's like, yeah, there was no defense for that play. Like, like he was just he could just do things that physically didn't make sense for a man his size. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dude, I had a random thought here, uh, which was. The Rockets really had incredible jerseys. This 94 Rockets mm. look to me is by far the best jersey that the team has ever had. And oh, yeah. It just like, I, I, I forget. I think this was your basketball black ages, but the, uh, the Yao Ming era jerseys were a disaster. Ugh. They were Ugh. so just bad. The- white with like very like weird red piping. yeah there were pinstripes but do you remember like the cartoon rocket like there was like a oh well wait the pinstripes were were earlier than yeah that was like olajuwon's like final years with like barkley and like scotty pippen on the team yes yes i mean that's 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 an infamous jersey of course i remember that yeah um but even yeah. like the simple like McGrady Yao yeah, Ming Mc- jerseys, I mean they were they were a little more like minimal and like elegant, but they were still like just very. I hated dull them. Yeah, no, I'm unremarkable. I, I think my point is like it was a pretty slippery slope after these jerseys, which were really solid. You know, like I I, yeah. I really did like this jersey a lot. It's very like clean and classic, um, and just seeing the the Rockets play in them, I was like, damn, they really had a nice thing with these jerseys. Then they went into like a twenty year period of like some really bad fashion. Yeah, no, it's true. It was very classic. Um, I mean, they stuck with them for a long time. I feel like they were their jer- like th- these were pretty much their jerseys throughout the eighties, yep. um, and then were finally changed. I think for the ninety five ninety six season. Um, but uh, but yeah, classic. The red yeah. and yellow. You know, they just kind of like 
like just paired together well um yeah not 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 very busy very uh just kind of sleek and and good looking yeah um but uh all right so there's yeah i will say though go ahead oh i was just gonna say that the court however the houston court Mm um i don't know if this is going off on too much of a tangent but the court kind of fills me with dread dread it's like too simple um just the red uh the, like the 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 plain red paint yeah. and then the red um border <laughs> i don't know why that kind of freaks me out but anytime there's a solid um like color surrounding a court it it looks very like weird to me and uh for some reason the court just in like the whole arena just feels like it was like 10 or 20 years older than it actually what like it like the whole look of it just made me feel like I was kind of watching like a game from like the early eighties. Um, and ben, I don't know. It didn't make as, me feel uh, good. As your therapist, I want you to go deeper yeah. with that. Um, what, uh, what, what do you think that's about? So I, I knew, I, I knew, I, I think it's, I think I could be wrong, but I think it's the shade of red that the re- shade of red is really unsettling. It's yeah. there is okay. something that's like, is it bloody? It's like there is something like no. It's not blood. No. no. Let me. All right. Let me. Let me explore a little bit here, um, uh, with my <clears throat> with my therapist. So, it, when I was in high school, uh, I had a car. Wow. My very first car was a 1989 Ford Probe. Okay. Um, it was. Uh, I think it, it cost my parents about two thousand five hundred dollars um, to buy that car used for for me to drive in high school. A stick shift. 89 Ford Probe, and it was basically the exact same color as not the Rockets jerseys, which is kind of like a a more basic kind of like primary like royal red, but the court is like the only way I can describe it is 80s red, which is like not quite red. It's like orangey. <laughs> it's like, like mis- a little bit mixed of orange with rust and stuff. Yeah, y- yeah. It's like mixed in, so it just feels a little gross. Like it's just like. It's like a like a cheap like plastic version of uh, of of the color red, um, and it's the same color as my high school car. And so I'm sure it, yeah. it probably is that. Um, you know, the high school years were were not among my favorite uh, in my life, um, and, and I think it just kind of fills me with this like sense of like unease dread. and just kind of like yeah, dread and like not and like uh, and and it not being modern, like not being. Even for like 1994, it didn't feel modern to that time. It, it felt like it was like from. Sickly. It feels like sickly. It, it feels yeah. like it's almost like they. It's almost like. Do you guys know that there's a healthy version of red? Like you could get real red, but you chose like 1980s red. You know, like that's an expired. Yeah, it was it's like, like the ch- expired was, red. Yeah, it was the cheap like knockoff version because they like didn't want to spring for like the real the nice like the, the the good quality stuff. It's like the same as having, you know, the Chicago Bulls intro music for your intro music because you were just like, all right, whatever. Like this is this is fine. This is good enough. It'll work for us. Um, like we can pass this off, and like you know, ninety nine point nine percent of people will say like, oh yeah, that's the color red. That's fine. I have nothing. I have no problem with that. Um, but to me, I I was just yeah, it did not sit well with me. Um, it at any makes point, me, uh, it makes me think. I guess looking at the logo at center court as well, you have like the yellow um, circle, right, where it says mm-hmm. Rockets across the middle. It makes me think of 
a color that's been like a red that's been like sitting out in the sun, like the desert. Yes, like the desert Houston sun has just been yes, beating it's absolutely sunburned. Has just been beating um, down on faded. this red for like years, yeah. like literally thirty or forty years. Like they never got mm-hmm. a fresh coat of paint, and this poor yeah, they never red, restored it. This yeah, poor it's red, like chipped and faded. Yep, like just like your nineteen eighty nine car. Like it, it's like chipping, it's peeling away, it's sunburnt, it's blistered, it's begging, yeah. it's just begging for a fresh coat of paint. The air conditioning broke, and I just can't afford to fix it. And it's sweltering. It's just sweltering, you know. Yep. And the the wind. There's no power windows. It's 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 a it's a you know a roll uh, a window roll. I uh, I feel a little anxious. I feel a little anxious Uh, just knowing that my players are in that arena. Just like knowing that they have to play in those conditions. Like it doesn't feel safe. Like you know, there's not air conditioning in that arena, and they're probably you know they're choking on that hot desert air. Uh, so yeah, there is a lot of anxiety mm. about that red on the court. There is a mm-hmm. lot of anxiety there. Um, yeah, it really imbues the whole experience. Yeah. So. All right, back to the game here. So the Knicks, uh, there's about three minutes left in the quarter. The Knicks are shooting a blistering 62% in quarter one with about three, four minutes left. Seems sustainable. Um, <laughs> of course. John Starks gets to the rim. At about 16.35, Starks gets to the rim and uh, for a layup, the score is 20 to 15. The Knicks are up by five. Then uh, Starks hits a jumper after that. Mars says, John Starks sitting on his first jump shot. He has six points in all, playing very much under control here in the first quarter. Oh, yes. I, I absolutely had that in my notes, playing very much under control. Because, <laughs> as we all know, he could lose control at any moment. <laughs> you never know. John could really fly off the handle. So the Knicks are up 22 to 18. Uh, Starks draws the offensive foul from Vernon Maxwell moving backwards. That's Maxwell's second foul. And now hang on, Chris, there's a critical moment Mm. right, right in between those two plays. Um, at 2130 of our broadcast, Marv Albert, uh, notes that Bob Costas is actually not available for tonight's broadcast on NBC because Bob Costas is where? Marv Albert, Matt Gukas, Amon Bashad, and a storm. Bob Costas, incidentally, not with us tonight. He is among a group of media people at the White House this evening at a uh, dinner date type affair with the uh, president. Should be pointed out as the Knicks look to get it down low and succeed. By the time the evening's proceedings are over at the White House, I'm certain that Bob will have Gordon Hillary turned around that on the new baseball realignment structure. At the White House. Among a group of media people at the White House tonight for a dinner date type affair. Wow. Marv's words. A dinner date type affair with the president. Talking NAFTA with President Clinton. No, no, no. Talking NAFTA. Sure. I mean, we are yeah. we are nothing if not uh, topical on, yeah. and, uh, and and on, on on message here. Um, wow. Yeah, Bob Costas uh, getting getting a, an invite to the swanky White House dinner date type affair with the president. Um, and uh, it wouldn't be the only time that, that that Marv noted that, but I feel like he no, this he was is a really big like. Theme. <laughs> Yeah, it was very kind of uh, proud and and uh, and I don't know, kind of bragging almost uh, yes. about the fact that his colleague Bob was at the White House that night. Uh, um, so we end quarter one here. The score is twenty four to twenty one. The New York Knicks are up by three. 
uh, just general thoughts on the quarter thus far. You know, Houston is really struggling with their shot. They're nine of twenty-one from the field. Um, yeah, I think at one point they missed like ten straight shots. Yeah, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Starks, but looks uh, really yeah, good. Knicks. Yeah, Starks is looking solid. Uh, you know, Ewing has been pretty quiet, but he's played some good defense. He had a great block on Elijah one at one point uh, earlier in the quarter. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you know, not uh, uh, thing, things are looking pretty good, but yeah. uh, certainly ex- extremely unsustainable shooting by the Knicks. So we'll <laughs> see if that lasts. All right, let's hop into quarter two. Um, anything jump off the page for you here, Ben, in quarter two? Uh, I mean, I think, from the the end of quarter one into quarter two, the Knicks missed five shots in a row. Um, and I, it kind of struck me that basically the New York Knicks were a team of John Starks's. Um, they were not, just as a team, like so incredibly streaky and inconsistent. Um, like it really, uh, it was amazing just how consistently inconsistent they were, where they would have, you know, an, an entire quarter where they shoot 60% or whatever. And then, they would just go cold and it would just be like, Oh, okay. I guess we'll just hope that this ends eventually. Um, but they had like no power to actually end it themselves. It was just like, well, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, we're not going to like change anything to try to like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, actually have control of our fate anyway. It was just, they would just go cold sometimes. Um, and somehow it would affect the entire team. It wasn't just John Starks, but, um, Anyway, let's see. Uh, But it was interesting at the top of the second quarter, Matt Gukas mentions the different matchups that the Knicks showed Hakeem in game one. Right. So at this point, Mason's in there. He's defending him. Yeah. Yeah. So they were saying Hakeem had the most success against Patrick, but he seemed to really struggle against Anthony Mason, only shooting two of five. And he even uh, says Mason's strength gave him difficulty in the post. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty incredible when you consider that Anthony Mason was six foot seven and Hakeem Olajuwon was seven foot, 256 pounds. Um, so, you know, for Hakeem to say that Mason gave him difficulty because of his strength, you know, it's it's pretty big yeah. deal. No, I mean, it's it's uh, astounding. The fact that a, a, a guy that, that paid, played small forward as his main position um again very like draymond green-esque um reminded me a lot also a lot of uh ben wallace trying to defend yeah. Shaq uh yeah. in the 04 finals um where you know mason was short enough that he hadn't there was no threat there's no rim protection there was no threat that he would ever be able to block elijah one's shot and usually the only time elijah one did have success is when he kind of do a little his little spin fade away over mason that was like the kind of the one weakness um but anytime he tried to post up, it was just like, no, you're not getting anything because he was so strong, but also quick enough on his feet, you know, to move laterally to to, to stay with Olajuwon. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, really did a good job on him. And then, in fact, uh, on that point, they had that little sound bite from Mason. We're early second quarter, Knicks lead by four. Anthony Mason has done a nice job defending against Akeem Olajuwon. Anthony Mason, a very effective defender, no matter who he's playing, be it a center forward or a guard. We talked with Mason about his defensive skills. I don't know, maybe I love defense. You know, it's a difference, you know. I 
study different ways to play people, and I just love defense. It's a different heat. To be a good defender, I think you gotta love to play defense. You can't just get out there because you gotta be out there. Oh boy, oh boy. Incredible quote from Mason, and it totally reminded me of Raymond, where he's like, I study different ways to play people, um, which, I don't know, maybe back in 94, like, every player did that, but it seems to me like that was pretty kind of you know what avant-garde it, it reminded for, me for the of the only good part from the last dance which was when dennis rodman was talking about his obsession with studying the art of tipping the ball do you remember oh that? yeah yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah totally yeah um but yeah love mason so much and uh yeah it was just incredible his versatility of course right after he they dropped that sound bite uh Olajuwon pulls a sick turnaround draws a foul on mason wow. and drops the bucket incredible um, move. just i mean yeah. mason hacks him on the wrist and it's just a great great move by hakeem just f- yeah. fading away beautiful and one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah very pretty Schubert davis gets to the line at one point and i gotta say man i can't really remember I didn't really even remember that Hubert Davis was on the team since like the bull series. Like yeah, D- Davis, I know. Hubert, he's been invisible. He, Hubert Davis goes one for two from the line. And so the score is 27, 25. The Knicks are up by two with about eight minutes left in the, in the quarter. But that was kind of the, who the Knicks were, right? Like was like, Oh right. They have this other player. Like I haven't really, I guess I haven't really thought about him in four games. Um, yeah. And that could just happen I mean, yeah. with this team. Yeah. And I guess he just wasn't playing as much as, as Starks was kind of like recovering and working yeah. his way back and, and fully recovering from his knee surgery. He was, so. he was a bench guy. Like he was a role player. Yeah. But it's, it's yeah, just yeah. funny how like he was literally a pivotal piece in winning the Bull Series. And then it's like, oh, did he play in Indiana? I don't even really remember talking about him during the Indiana Series. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just such an odd. I mean, again, it's just yeah. a different game, but they just didn't utilize him. I mean, he his basically his main strength was his three point shooting, sure. and I don't, don't remember a single time where they like drew up a play and like ran him off like a pin down screen to get him like an open corner three. Like he just didn't. Right. They didn't like that was if he that if he somehow role. through the through the natural organic course of the of the ball movement he found himself with an open three. Sure, he would take it, but there was never like a deliberate like. Oh, Hubert Davis is like a really good three-point shooter. Let's try to get him an open three. Right. Like the <laughs> like way that, like, do that for him. Mike Miller used to be used by like the Heat or whatever. It was like that guy yeah. is out there to shoot threes. It just yeah. that that role didn't exist. He wasn't in there for his defense, but they just like they were like ah whatever he'll just do something. I thought it was interesting. Marv was talking about how the Houston fans have come to love and appreciate Robert Ory. After he arrived mm. on the team, he you know he he arrived on the team with like little fanfare. He came out of the University of Alabama, I guess. And mm-hmm. regarding the the failed trade with the Pistons, Marv says mm-hmm. the Rockets say it's the best trade that they never made. And um, incredible to think about Robert Ory, man, like Hall of Fame career. Uh, it's just it's just wild, you know. Yeah, humble beginnings yeah. for that guy for sure. Vernon Maxwell hits a big three pointer. Maxwell. 31-31 with about four minutes and 30 seconds left in the quarter. You know, we got to talk about him at some point, man. Like, this is a guy, Vernon Maxwell, that he and Starks kind of go at it at one point during the game and kind of trade in baskets, and he could have played for the Knicks, dude. Oh, like, yeah. He was such a hard-nosed player. Um, yeah, yeah. He was basically the Texas version of John Starks. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and wait, did they say that he was, no, he wasn't from, I know Kenny Smith and Mario Ely were from New York, 
but not Maxwell, right? I forget where he grew up, but uh, yeah, Gainesville, Florida. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. When did he join the Rockets? So they were talking about that, if I remember correctly. He was drafted by the Nuggets, who traded him to the San Antonio Spurs on draft night. Um, and so I think he came up with the Spurs and then mm. eventually found his way onto the Rockets. Right, traded traded to the Rockets midway through the 89-90 season, um, which is interesting. Like, that always fascinates me, like the early, like the late 80s, basically like all the terrible Rockets teams that Olajuwon was like just racking up stats on. Um, you know, after their run to the finals in 86, they, they were just like a complete like non-entity um, for a while there. And it fascinates me that, like, I guess by 90-91, they were, like, pretty good. Um, they were, yeah, they were a 50-win team by then. So they were, like, a playoff team by, like, the early 90s. But uh, but I feel like he got there kind of, like, just as they were becoming relevant again. Um, but, uh, yeah, I feel like a lot of the guys, like, most of their key players were, like, newer additions. Like, Cassell was a rookie. Ori mm-hmm. was in his second year. Um, Otis Thorpe was kind of like the OG, yeah. uh, along with Olajuwon. He's joined the team like in the 88. old guard, yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, where were we? Right, marching um, towards halftime. Anything here in the final two three minutes of the second quarter? So it's like the the pace like slows to a crawl through like much of the second, and like the both teams go cold. Um, at one point with like three minutes left in the quarter in the second quarter, the, the score for the quarter is 12 to nine, um, (laughs) which is, uh, which is not good. Uh, if anyone doesn't realize that, um, but, uh, but then like suddenly in the final, like two and a half minutes, like both teams just like, yep. Go like bonkers. Um, and, uh, and it's just like trading baskets back and forth. Um, I think it's with like a couple minutes left in the, in the first half, Marv notes yet again. Thank you, Hannah. Bob Costas not with us tonight among a group of media people, as we mentioned earlier, at the White House tonight, having a dinner with the uh, president. Matt, I know you have a similar day next week at the Kremlin. <laughs> Trademark Marv deadpan joke uh, to Matt Gukas saying, quote, Matt, I know you have a similar date next week at the Kremlin. <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, classic Marv. And also... Boy, what year is this? Is it is it 2016? Is it 2020? No, it's it's 1994. Uh, Marv with some uh, ahead of his time, uh, you know, uh, Russia, yeah. Russia, America humor. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, as I said, yeah, both teams finished the half uh, with some blazing offense. Uh, so to to pull the score now, keep in mind, uh, blazing offense for two and a half minutes pulls the score to 42-42. Yep. <laughs> At halftime. Amazing. Again, commercials are cut out here. We don't get a halftime show. Yeah, any um, big picture stuff here? Uh, thoughts, observations on the first half? You know, the Knicks are definitely, like, looking a little more competent, as you said. I think for me, like, on the whole, the game is just, like, m- much more watchable than game one, right? There's, like, actual offense. We're seeing the ball go in the hoop. And, of course, mm-hmm. you know, the on-the-screen graphics are not moving. They're... They're, mm. they're not, they're immobile, they're inanimate, they just are static, they just stay still on the screen, and so for me, Ben, I'm feeling very grateful for a sober game two experience thus far, I don't know what the second half has in store, but like, feeling just like, 
very grateful to be on steady ground watching uh, yeah. this, this game. <laughs> Patrick, of course, is struggling with his shot. Hakeem has looked fantastic. Hakeem has 14 points. Uh, you mentioned there was a scoring flurry in the final you know, two, three minutes of the second quarter. And uh, Vernon Maxwell. Vernon Maxwell has hit a pair of threes. He's got 10 points. But uh, on the whole, just like a really entertaining watch, which I have to say, like, is not something I'm used to uh, thinking when watching a Knicks game in in 1994. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't even call it entertaining so much as just kind of like (laughs) not um, nauseating, which is in its own way, like kind of kind of strange. It's I felt a little like, is this it? Is this all that uh, that basketball really is? It, it, It almost kind of felt like destabilizing to to not feel like i was having a mental breakdown um it made me question like you know sort of right like am i uh am i am i uh, observing something that is real or am i you know in some sort of i don't know um it, it was it was very oddly calm i would say um well, after ben, everything that we've been through yeah again as your therapist like that speaks to the conditions <laughs> In which you grew up as a basketball fan, like you grew up mm. in a state of turmoil, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you sort of normalized and internalized chaos with your basketball team. You internalized sort of madness. You internalized sort of this like very um, hard-nosed sort of brand of basketball, you know, defense first brand of basketball where often, you know, 70 points in a game would suffice. You just, you're, you're grateful to have it. So yeah, this mm. is, this is definitely a different experience for us here in game two mm-hmm. of the, uh, the NBA finals. Yeah. All right. For sure. Hopping in with quarter three. So yeah. Did you notice at forty nine fifteen? this is right after the halftime break, I believe they're coming back from, from the break. Um, and just for a few seconds, they show a shot of the crowd and I see someone holding up a sign. The corner is like a little folded over, so you can't see uh, the last letter of the sign. But it pretty clearly says, go, it's a red and yellow, uh, it's, a, it's a yellow sign with red lettering, clearly a, a Houston Rockets, uh, you know, sort of piece of, of signery, signage. Um, and, and the sign reads, go hellhole. <laughs> um, which I was like, hold on a second. I, what does that mean? I have to um, look at this slowly yeah yeah no 40... I, okay so this is going to be another piece of investigative journalism by us but that uh, that is clearly a go h-e-l-l-h-o-l and then i can't imagine what else could fit on that sign but but an e yeah um i i am basically 100 sure it reads go hellhole um so i did a little research and it turns out, I mean, I don't know if someone made this sign at home uh, or if it was a you know piece of official merchandise uh, sold in the arena, um, but it is uh, pretty clearly a, uh, a response, a clapback to a New York Post columnist named Wallace Matthews, mm-hmm. who just a couple days uh, prior to game two uh, wrote an article in the New York Post in which he basically just ranted about what a shitty city <laughs> Houston, Texas is. Oh, my God. Um, and now he claims that he, uh, which I believe him because this is usually the case, he was not actually, as, as the columnist, he was not responsible for the headline. But the headline uh, chosen by the New York Post editors was, quote, this place is a hellhole. 
Um, and uh, and I, I, I found an article from uh, buffalonews.com uh, that reads, Houston is steaming mad over a New York Post columnist, uh, sorry, a New York Post column about the Texas metropolis this week that was headlined this place as a hellhole. The column by Post sports columnist Wallace Matthews reprinted in Thursday's Houston Chronicle, and I believe the game was Friday, um, or it might have even been that that night, um, uh, described America's fourth most populous city as, quote, a steamy, bug-infested, nondescript prairie town. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I have to hand it to Wallace Matthews. That is um, incredibly uh, just evocative prose, uh, and I would assume very accurate. I've never been to Houston, Texas, and I hope I never uh, have to go. Um <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I love that. As always, the New York Post is is uh, just waging war with whatever uh, opponent. Uh, Wait, you know they, they 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 have in their sights, dude. Okay, so are you freeze framed on that image? Hell Hulk, go, uh, go Hell Hulk. Yes, yes. Look at the two guys sitting in front of the sign or holding the sign. Are they not wearing hats that say Hell Hulk? Oh, I didn't notice that. Let's see. Well, the shot first starts closed in, close close in on a uh, guy wearing not, a cowboy so not hat. Not the cowboy. Not the cowboy. So when you get f- we, to forty nine, we're, we're zooming out, zooming. Oh my God! You're right. Freeze on forty nine nineteen, and look yep. very closely at the two gentlemen wearing the red hat, the red baseball caps. Wow. Does yep. that not say? There's, there's one guy across them. Yeah. There's one guy in white holding the sign. And there's a guy sitting next to him with a short sleeve, like, buttoned down. Yeah. And both of them have identical hats, red hats with black brims that clearly say hellhole on them. Wow. So I have to imagine, I mean, gosh, if those, if those are homemade, that's really, really impressive. Bravo. But I have to imagine that that is official Houston Summit Arena, you know, merchandising capitalizing off the uh, you know the elitist snobby new york post uh calling their city a hellhole so and uh and 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 embracing it um yeah much like uh much like indiana and their their dog pound merchandise um love uh yeah love love deep diving into the into, into the the stuff that the fans yeah, were dude, concerning themselves the with of, the sort of culture wars that existed you know we yeah we kinda, totally we, such a culture war we, against new york we forget because the knicks have been so bad for so long that one of the fun things about a good new york team is you get to vilify the new york team mm-hmm. for basically being like a cartoon version of donald trump so it's like mm-hmm. we're like daddy warbucks which is like yeah uh, they're the evil they're, empire they're, whatever you they're call evil it. and rich and they live atop a glass tower and like they mm-hmm. only eat caviar and we the humble country folk living here yeah, in, fly over country yeah, we're the real americans living in texas or indiana or wherever it is like we mm-hmm. are like humble pie like we we are just average joe americans who you know like to you know eat our our, our humble pie and and go about our work and uh you know like they want nothing with like big city life and mm-hmm, it's just so funny mm-hmm. the way that new york city is easily characterized just the way that we talk about like the Lakers being like a glamour team and like obsessed mm-hmm. with celebrity. It's just mm-hmm. like a fun trope that we do as sports fans. And totally. the Knicks have been so bad for so long. You forget that this is one of the fun things about 
when the Knicks are good, you can make fun of them for being like elitists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and just the way that like other teams would like embrace, you know, their their like fucking basically you know, yeah, and, like, like the Ted DiBiase of the NBA, you know. The Knicks leaders now two starts one on one goes at Maxwell and got it up over Elijah. Well, John took Pat Riley's advice. He had a little open floor situation, a little hesitation. Maxwell raised up. John took a very tough shot. Fortunate to get it down, but did the right thing in taking the ball to hoop. Starts with a move, driving up and over Hakeem. Just really acrobatic stuff from John Stokes. Oh, yeah, where, where it goes hard into Maxwell and then floats it up over yeah. uh, one. So the yeah. score is 51-47, the Knicks are up by four with about eight minutes and 20 seconds left. Olajuwon hits, and then uh, Derek Harper switches a three. away from it in game one here. Harper hits the three, and Derek Harper on fire. At that point, uh, Derek Harper is shooting four for four. Yeah. uh, And also playing great defense. Yes, dude. Um, I wrote in my notes uh, about that shot. It feels like these are his his three-pointers, man. Are becoming like these like quiet daggers. Like every mm-hmm. one of those shots, it feels like leads to a timeout by Rudy Tomjanovich. Um, yeah, do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, he was a very like kind of silent assassin type of guy. It's oh, um, like his shots were always kind of like a backbreaker. You know what I mean, or like a mm-hmm. momentum shift. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, yeah, it's a really good point. Ewing has a great because it felt like it was it was always when like there was no other offense and like it would it would be like a bailout, you know, where it's like okay, great defense, we've bottled them up. That you know, Ewing, we shut down Ewing. You know, Starks isn't doing much, and then suddenly like Derek Harper would come out of nowhere with the three. Ah, like, oh, he was always like it. the last that guy. last line of defense where it was like, wait, mm-hmm. are you serious? Like Derek Harper hit a three? God, um, yeah. Ewing has a great tip back. Uh, scores fifty six fifty one. Uh, Charles Smith at this point has now four fouls. When did that happen? Mm-hmm. I write in my notes. Um, yeah, yeah. And, a, and the fourth a, was an offensive foul, kind of a weak call, but whatever. Around fifty nine ten, there's an amazing graphic on the screen about the shooting percentage here. An amazing graphic. So in game one, the Knicks guards, which are John Starks, Greg Anthony, and Derek Harper. In game one, they shot collectively 10 for 41 for 24%. Tonight, mm, is that good? No. Tonight, in game two, they are 9 of 13, shooting 69%. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> How do you explain that? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, just, it's one or the other, folks. I'm sorry. We, we, can't, we can't be like a 45% team. Nope. It's one or the other. We're just not that team. We're just We're not, not that team. consistent yeah. at all. Uh, nope. About one hour, 15 seconds left. Starks hits another three. Starks for three. John Starks with 16 points. Next lead by six. And that was a little- At this point, Starks and Maxwell are kind of like in their own sort of game. Like they're like the game mm-hmm. within the game, Starks and Maxwell. They're, they're going at it. That's now 16 points for John Starks. The score is 59 to 53. The Knicks are up by six with five minutes and 43 seconds left. Um, and then he hits another three. Shake it up. Starks again. Three-pointer for John Starks. Vernon Maxwell took a shot and hit the floor. Well, Maxwell knew this play was coming for John Starks and prevented him from coming out off that screen, forced him to go another way. But his own teammate, Olajuwon, inadvertently popped him in the top of the head with his right shoulder. After Maxwell is, is actually popped by uh, Olajuwon uh, right. coming off a screen, 
uh, freeing Starks up. 62-56, Knicks up by six. Um, and yeah, this is when it just dawned on me, man, that like John Starks and Vernon Maxwell, seeing them trade threes really makes you like realize the guys were mirror images of each other in, in certain ways, like streaky shooters, chippy defenders, Maxwell mm-hmm. would have been right at home on the Knicks. And, Absolutely uh, uncontrollable emotions <laughs> that usually got the best of them because they are yes. 11-year-old boys yes. that cannot control themselves. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. Um, all right, getting down to the final minute or two here in the third. Ewing hits a jumper. He now has 14 points, 66 to 60. The Knicks are up by six. Robert Ori drains a three. And then Derek Harper with the steal and a jumper. couple of minutes as he did in game number six against the Indiana Pacers. Yeah, and so Harper came up with a steal, um, but then Ewing coughed it up immediately on the other end. And then he got another steal, like this the very next possession, um, and then just like pulled up on his own and, and swished it. So um, he's really like dominating on both ends of the court. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, I have in my notes... Um, there's a kind of a wild sequence where like Stark throws that behind the back pass that didn't work at all um, and then right after that uh, Mason is just bodying Olajuwon um, I just have in my notes so so impressive uh, you know M- Mason just like a brick wall against Olajuwon's post up um, let's see at the end of the quarter Oakley swishes it along two yep. which is the only shot that he ever took um Nick's up seven with 45 seconds left um uh, Mason collects off a Harper miss and puts in a short jumper and yeah uh quarter three ends with a Knicks up 72 65 and I don't know if this is right but I think they said that the Knicks shot 13 of 19 in the third quarter yes um, which is just ridiculous, mind-boggling. Starks now has um, 19 points, and the Knicks are shooting an incredible 56% on the game. Yeah, that would be uh, record-shattering if it were for uh, for an entire game, Yep, I believe. Um, let's see. Did, uh, yeah, the fourth quarter starts just incredibly sloppy, uh, where they suddenly can't perform a successful entry pass. Um <laughs> I think they have like five turnovers in like the first like three minutes or four minutes of the uh, of the fourth quarter. Um, I have uh, Sam Cassell yep. uh, hits a three, and I write, "Oh God!" Lajuan facing a double team. Cassell for three. Pulls the Rockets yep. to within one, 71-72. Riley calls the timeout. About, yeah, a minute and a half into the quarter. Um, Six b- b- unanswered b- points by the Rockets, 72-71, ten and a half minutes left. Yeah. Uh, Knicks with another turnover off a fucking entry pass. Like, they were, like, the, the absolute kings of just, of, of just, like, not being able, of, like, not being able to, to do an entry pass. Um <laughs> Maybe it was just because they did so many of them that I didn't, like, it was just, like, a, a usual rate of turnovers on entry passes, yeah. but because their main offensive play was just dump it down to Ewing, they just did did it so often that, that it, it seemed more 
more frequent than uh than usual um but uh but anyway, yeah, they're they start out pretty pretty badly. Uh, the Rockets actually take the lead. Let's see, there's that really long outlet pass by Otis Thorpe, the football pass to uh, a cherry picking Maxwell, uh, who lays it in. Yeah, so the Rockets are up seventy nine seventy six with about six twenty to go. Yeah, so Matt Kukas has this line. This fourth quarter started almost like the Knicks didn't expect the Rockets to come after them defensively. Hey, this team has a lot of pride. They have the second best record in the league, one of the best defensive teams in the league, and they can guard you. Yes, they allow just under. Nice. Just right in my nose, man. Are, fuck, are we about to self destruct? And then, yeah. um, Matt Bullard. Uh, <laughs> I, I forget if it's Marv or Gukas goes. Bullard for three. Yes. That's his shot. Matt Bullard has tied the game at 76. Matt Bullard ties the game. And I just wrote, Jesus Christ, that is not ex- something I expected to hear. And then, yes. Um, yeah, that was that was at 76-76. Yeah. yeah. Dude, and then how about that graphic at one twenty one thirty? Uh, that made me laugh. So this is the, oh, yeah, the most three-point field goals attempted in a finals game. Houston has tied yeah. the all-time record tonight by atti- by attempting 18 three-pointers. It was like, Ben, 18. Don't, <laughs> ben don't modern-day D'Antoni Rockets teams average like 18 threes in a quarter or something? <laughs> like, I mean, 18 threes is basically what James Harden takes by himself. Right, right. In a, in a, in a single game, yeah. usually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh yeah, but you know, it was uh it's a different game. So Turns out. one one hour, twenty six minutes, Jesus, at this point the Knicks are being scored outscored fourteen to four in the fourth quarter. Right. What the fuck is happening? It's getting That was right after the the out the, the football pass from Thorpe to Maxwell yeah. for a three point play. It's just getting out of control um, here. Charles Smith hits a pair of free throws. Uh, scores 79-78 Houston with about five minutes and 45 seconds left. Yeah, and then it's Derek Harper bailing us out. Like, really, when it looked like it was all unraveling. Starts check the clock. Harper for three. Yes. Derek Harper has had an outstanding all-around game. 15 points, seven assists, three steals. He's given the Knicks an 81-79 lead, and it leads to a timeout call. Well, good defense by There's you. now four minutes and four and a half minutes left in the game. So it's not like crunch time, crunch time, but it felt like an absolutely clutch shot. Yep. Like the Knicks needed it so yep. badly. Um, so that puts them uh, back up on top, 81-79. Houston calls a timeout. Oh, yeah. And then they come out from, this is amazing to me. So hilarious. They come out after the timeout and they play the soundbite from Derek Harper saying that uh quote oh my god this made me laugh extremely fortunate um being traded from dallas uh it just reiterates to me that there's a god more than anything you know i, I think it was truly him that got me out of the situation i'm i'm not upset with dallas or anything like that but i, I really appreciate the opportunity that they gave me to uh to, to have to win right now being traded from dallas reiterates to me that there's a god <laughs> it just reiterates to me okay. that there is a god yeah, talking about the uh, you know the, the the early season trade, uh, Tony Campbell and a, and a um, conditional first round pick uh, that landed Harper. We've we've talked about that trade plenty of times. Uh, 
uh, earlier on, on previous episodes. Um, but yeah, Derek Harper, um, you know, completely wallowing in, in obscurity in, in the hapless Dallas Mavericks franchise for his entire career up to that point. Um, and, uh, and then joins a, uh, a team and immediately goes to the NBA finals. Um, pretty incredible. Elijah Watt putting on the floor, lost it, starts with the steal, and Mason has a breakaway. The Knicks 83, the Rockets 79. Interesting. John Starks with a huge steal on Hakeem Olajuwon, mm-hmm. and then kicks mm-hmm. it up to Anthony Mason, who dunks it. Uh, in, yeah, dunks it right on, on Olajuwon's head. Yeah. yeah, dude, huge basket. Oh no, wait, sorry, that was a, that was a later. Yeah, that was a yeah a hit ahead yeah. for wide open Mason. Yeah, that a later play he would uh, dunk on him, uh, dunk uh, on Olajuwon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. a huge basket, man. So now it's 83-79. Knicks are up by four with three minutes and fifty seconds left, and suddenly the Knicks are on a seven zero run. And um, yeah, just it just feels like this is like an inflection point where things are beginning to change. Cassell, right, they kind of like stabilize and and, and regain control. Regain control bit. for sure. So Sam Sam Cassell is mm. rejected by Patrick Ewing. There's a loose ball foul by Robert Ory, and that puts Anthony Mason on the line. He hits one of two. Now the score is 84 to 79, and it looks like the Knicks have stabilized the game a bit. Right, uh, right, up, up right. By five points. Uh, Elijah gets fouled. He makes a pair. Um, oh, and then this was a huge play. So after Ewing misses a shot, yep. back on the other end, uh, Ewing is kind of fronting Elijah in the post. Um, but, uh, a, you know, a pass kind of gets over, uh, o- over Ewing's, uh, hands. Like he tries to intercept the entry pass, but misses. So Lajuan grabs it and goes up for like, what looks like a pretty open dunk. Ewing stepping out, knocked it away. Lajuan on the recovery block by Ewing. Ewing with an enormous play, rejecting Lajuan. That's his fourth and amazingly, Ewing recovers and blocks him from behind. Um, Great, just play. like a massive, a massive defensive play by Ewing. Um, yeah, Marv Mar- Mar- uh, on the call. Ewing with an enormous play, rejecting Olajuwon. That's his fourth block in the game. Yeah, yeah. It's cr- it's like kind of crazy to me how you know like because Ewing wasn't like the the defender on Olajuwon the entire time. You almost kind of thought to yourself like. Oh man, like I guess they're kind of like uh, covering up like a weakness there. Like you know, maybe Mason is like a more effective defender, um, which wasn't really the case at all. Like Ewing was still like an absolute beast. Um, you know, especially his obviously his rim protection. Um, uh, you know, sort of most importantly, but uh, but the fact is that they were just you know trying to save his his fouls and, and save him uh, for his offensive ability, which is like pretty much all the Knicks had on offense. So. Um, even though they were like changing up all these different looks, like he was still probably the most, def- you know, uh, I don't know if he was the most effective defender, but he was still like extremely, uh, you know, just like good at defense. It's incredible. Yeah, man, it's incredible. Like, let's be real. He uh, certainly in the Georgetown days, he was a defense first player that like, oh yeah, built an incredible offensive game for himself. But like, he he earned his stripes as the number one overall draft pick as like a defensive stalwart, right? Like as, yeah. a, as a rim protecting big that could develop an offensive game. 
And right. the fact that the fact that like he became the offensive focal point on this this uh, 1994 Knicks team is sort of like, wow, man! Like he just he had so much responsibility. So yeah, 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 crazy. And then um, you know, following that play on the other side of the court, Derek Harper with another three. Harper for three. God, yeah, and just dagger after dagger from this guy. I, I wrote my notes. I just don't remember this game or how big of a performance we got from Derek Harper during this game. But he yeah. is now four for five from three. The score is eighty-seven, eighty-one. The Knicks are up by six points with two minutes left, and mm-hmm. like the ga- I guess the game ball is going to go to Derek Harper here if the Knicks wind up winning because like every. Every moment where they needed kind of a nail in the coffin and they needed a big shot, it was Derek Harper that was giving it to us. Yeah, he was just bailing them out over and over again. And yeah, uh, once again, uh, his three leads directly to a Houston timeout um, so they can collect themselves. Um, yeah, he was just huge. He was huge. Um, and uh, yeah, it made you think like, huh, why can't he just be like that all the time? But sure. for some reason, yeah, he wasn't. I mean, you know, he was getting on in years and stuff, but uh, yeah, but yeah, he certainly certainly came up big this game. I think um, coming out of the timeout, uh, Houston has the ball and they are trying to force an entry pass into Olajuwon, and Patrick is just waiting for it there and swipes it away, mm-hmm. steals it right from Hakeem. Ewing stepping out to steal. Patrick Ewing with the steal, and Harper able to bring it across. That feels like that's gonna be the game. Um, yeah, another just huge clutch defensive play by Ewing. Um, yeah, it uh, doesn't result in a basket on the other end. Starks misses, um, but uh, yeah, Knicks D stays pretty tight. Um, they force the Rockets into a couple more misses. The Rockets at this point have missed like six in a row, I think. Yep, one minute to go. The Rockets have missed their last six shots. And I don't know, I don't know about you, man, but like, it feels like everyone in this final minute of the game is just playing hot potato with the ball and the Knicks Mm -hmm. are just like waiting for the sand to finish trickling into the hourglass. Just like, let's just get the game over with as quickly as humanly possible. Like it cannot, it cannot end quickly enough. And then, um, my God, this John Starks to Anthony Mason jam. Out of 50 seconds. Maxwell stripped by Starks. Maxwell thought he was fouled. Here's Starks giving it up. Mason jams it. And the Knicks add some cushion. They now lead 89 to 81. As they look to hold on for 43 and 9 10 seconds. And make the move back to New York with the series tied at 1. Uh, yeah, so Vernon Maxwell has the ball. He's dribbling up. And kind of comes tries to come off this this like sort of slightly moving like kind of almost like a fake pick by is that thorpe i believe um and then kind of coming off like the little brush pick by thorpe he starts to go into um the motion of a of a three but starks who's trailing him kind of coming off of the screen uh swipes the ball away what right is maxwell is uh is collecting and going up with it he does like a little arm flail and leg kick to try to draw the foul but the refs don't buy it uh, ball trickles over to Ewing, who collects, hits ahead to Starks, who's now streaking down the sideline. 
So it's a it's basically a one-on-one fast break. Olajuwon uh, is back in the paint to try to contest uh, Starks' uh, layup, but John very wisely just kind of flips it over his uh, over his head to none other than Anthony Mason, who is trailing the play brilliantly, uh, and he just dunks it right on Hakeem Olajuwon's just head. A um, school bus of a man dunking the ball. Yeah, Olajuwon doesn't even try to contest it. At that point, his momentum is is sort of bringing him. Uh, back into Starks. Um, but uh, yeah, so so Mason has a, a pretty clear path and just yams all over Olajuwon. And that kind of feels like the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the deal moment. sealer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in the final minute here, there's a bad pass from Oakley. I'm, I'm just paranoid, of course. I'm like, can the Rockets get back in this? There's 26 seconds left. And then Starks, uh, we get a Starks rebound. He kicks it out to Mason, who's fouled. Mason goes to the line. He hits both. And then it's 91 to 83. Knicks are up by eight with 11 seconds left. And that's basically how the game ends. End of the fourth quarter, the Knicks win 91 to 83. The series is now tied one game to one. And man, when we talk about this game, it's just, it's Derek fucking Harper. Um, Yeah. Every bucket. Came up huge. Every bucket, man. It was timely, gritty. And again, like I said before, it felt like every one of these baskets felt like it was a three-pointer and it was or or like it was coming off a steal and would lead to a Rudy Tomjanovich timeout. So, mm-hmm. um game ball goes to Derek Harper for sure. Yeah, Harper finishes with 18 points, 7 assists as well, 3 steals, shot 7 of 11 from the field, 4 of 6 from downtown in 37 minutes. Uh, Ewing finished with 16 and 13 rebounds, but with two steals and six blocks as well. Um, Just a massive uh, defensive uh, performance by Ewing. Yeah, Starks played pretty well. He shot six of 11, including three of four from downtown. He had 19 points, so really kind of answered the uh, the bell after that game one flop. Um, 19 points, uh, nine assists, five rebounds, three steals. Yeah, nine assists as well, which I don't remember nine like assists. any of them. I don't know how the nine assists happen, um, but uh, yeah, just uh, you know, just doing doing what he what he uh, had to do. Um, the Knicks had, finished yeah. with twenty five, but he was kind of bottled up in the fourth quarter. I think he only scored four points in the fourth quarter, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, because he had yeah at one point they showed that he had seven points in each of the first three quarters. Um, but yeah, finished with only four in the fourth. So Nick's really clamped down on him. Nick's had to have um, this game, man. Like we, we've talked about yeah. it all playoff run long. You know, there is a Jekyll and Hyde quality to these Knicks and it's like, it's just impossible to know what version to ever expect. Um, especially as we move ahead into game three, but we always know they're capable of being this good, but they're also capable of being as bad as they were in game one. So it's mm-hmm. just like, who knows? But tonight in game two, the Knicks shot 52% from the field. They shot a blistering 63% from three. And yeah, ga- I mean, that's kind of the game right there. In, like game that, one, that is- in game one, they shot 34% from the field and 27% from three. So yeah. Yeah, Rockets shot uh, 6 of 22 from 3. Uh, that's only 27% uh, on the game. Um, so, yeah, you watch that game, and you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, the Knicks have, like, a better team. Like, we can do this. Um, 
but it turns out that uh, shooting 64% or uh, 63% from, from downtown was a bit of an aberration for them. So Always a roller coaster yeah. with this team, Ben. Always, uh, always know, a roller coaster ride with these Knicks. Yeah, um, I am looking forward to uh, getting back to the garden, to a, a home arena that that, uh, that is actually not nauseating to look at, um, that has a simple royal blue, uh, you know, color scheme. God, man, I guess um, it's, it's been a while for us since we've been at the garden because... Yeah, it has, Everything... With George Floyd and kind of, you know, we did we did the Boku draft. Like, it's been a solid probably month since we were last yeah. at Madison Square Garden. So, right. it, my gosh. Game 7 Indiana feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, man. Um, it's going to be good to get home. It's going to be good to go home and just see that home crowd, see the laser light yeah. show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. De- definitely excited to get back home. Indeed. Um all right. Yeah. Any any final thoughts? No, or? man. This was uh, fun as always. Excited to hop into Game Three with you and uh, see where the series takes us. Thanks again for yeah. talking, man. And uh, I hope everyone enjoyed our our, uh, our little NAFTA history lesson at yeah. the top. Uh, if you have any, you know, uh, sort of uh, conflicting or or um, you know counter arguments uh, to our admittedly very very rudimentary understanding of NAFTA. Um, Please uh, let us know. Uh, email swishfmradio at yes. gmail.com. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or tweet at us, swishfmradio uh, on Twitter. And we are on uh, Instagram, of course, at swishfmradio. So hit us up, find us, talk to us, let us know what you think. And I uh, hope you guys are staying safe and sound and staying inside and wearing a mask if you have to be outside. And uh, we will talk to you next week. All right. A pleasure as always, my friend. Later, man. You've been listening to Switch. 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 Switch.